Hey, so welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And who do I have this week? I'm so, so, so excited. It's someone I'm just getting to know, and it is uh, Mr. Zach Williams. And I do not do introductions, so Zach, why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you? First off, I'm just thrilled to be on today, and uh, it's great to see you, Karis. Great speaking with you. My name Zach Williams. I did not set out to be a mental health advocate. I discovered it through a process of healing from trauma. I'm the son of the entertainer Robin Williams, who died by suicide. And I grew up in an environment where mental health was kind of a, a zero to one situation, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was binary. Mm-hmm. It was either you were fine or you were in the funny farm. Mm. And the reason why I use a, a backward term like the funny farm is because, you know, on my mother's side of the family and the like, we grew up in an Italian American environment mm-hmm. and mental health, mental illness was not a thing. So it was either you're fine or you went away. Right. And the away element of it was just very, very alien. And so I always had anxiety. I had bouts of depression through, you know, my teens up until early adulthood. I sought various ways to deal with it. But after my father died by suicide, I was drinking alcoholically uh, to manage the trauma, the generalized anxiety disorder, the bouts of depression I was dealing with and, uh, and found my life spiraling. And I, and I actually discovered that orienting towards helping others, starting actually in teaching financial literacy in state prison, helping others was a way for me to heal from the trauma, right? Mm. And so I ultimately discovered mental health advocacy as a way of managing the process of healing and discovered that service was actually my path to happiness. Wow. Wow. That's really kind of cool. It's so, it so aligns with how we think about our work in the peer world. Like, you know, nobody comes out of the womb and says, yeah, I want to be a peer. Yeah. That's what I want to do. Like, you know, this is kind of like not even in the vernacular, like what it even is a um, mental health peer. And very similarly, you know, we don't think about mental health, having it or not having it until we don't have it. (laughs) Right. 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 (laughs) It's like, totally, you know, for me, it was so stigmatized in my life. Not, you know, I was raised well. My, my parents were conscientious and focused on ensuring that I had an open-minded approach towards dealing with things. Mm-hmm. It just so happened that my personal perspective, and it was influenced by extended family and the like, was we don't talk about mental health. And then it required a journey of personal discovery with the good, the bad, and the ugly around bottoming out that led me down this journey of helping myself through helping others. A major turning point for me was finding strength and resilience through vulnerability. Yeah. You know, when you talk about, um, you know, strength and resilience through vulnerability, I was going to say, those are lots of great grown-up ideas. How do you, how did you get to that, that space where you recognize I'm vulnerable. I, I'm, I'm actually growing in, you know, my own strength and my own recovery. How did, how did you get to that point? Well, I really started getting to that point, really started processing when I started acknowledging 
what I was doing to manage my mental health issues, right? Mm-hmm. Which was which was straight up just drinking alcoholically. And I was doing so to mask a lot of what I was feeling. Yeah. And when I stopped drinking, suddenly everything kind of washed over me and I was feeling pretty intensely vulnerable and not feeling great and was anxious. And and I started realizing, hey, something has to give, but I can't go back to numbing my feelings. Hmm. And so so I started actually really looking inwardly and saying, hey, what is it I need to do to be comfortable in my own skin? And there's a couple of things. One is stop, I had to stop BSing myself. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, that was a major element of it is like, hey, you have this perception of who you are as a person. It probably served you effectively for a period of your life until it didn't. Because mm-hmm. that perception of the person and an element of it was denial. Mm. It's only it's only when you reach the point of mental anguish mm. that you're like, I can't continue living like this. And then so I basically had to say, look, you either have a choice. You can continue numbing yourself and find a so slow decline into oblivion. Or you can say, look, I'm worth it. I love myself or I can I can find a path, a pathway to loving myself Mm-hmm. And I'm going to explore, I'm going to make that choice. I'm going to make that choice towards loving myself. And you know what? I've got nothing to lose. And so that's the decision I made. And so basically it's like, when you start realizing it's like, Hey, you can be vulnerable. If you have nothing to lose, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's worth trying out, finding ways to love mm-hmm. myself and heal and explore ways to be of service. And go from there. You know, I I think it it was interesting because for me, like the aha moment happened while teaching at San Quentin prison. Right. Okay. Yes. I woke up one day and I'm teaching at San Quentin prison. How did that, I was going to ask, how did that even come into being something that you would be doing? Sure. Very, there's a very specific path around it. My ex-wife is a criminal justice activist and she introduced me to that world. Uh, I have I have a background in business and technology and building frameworks and teaching people. And I'm very passionate about framing for people how they can develop self-worth through learning about financial empowerment and things like that. And so there happened to be a prisoner at San Quentin who goes by the name Wall Street, a man named Curtis Carroll, came in to assist him volunteer and supporting his class. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I just loved it. I took, I took to it and realized that volunteering, supporting the development of curricula was really helpful for me, mm-hmm. but I, I ended up kind of moving more into the mental health realm because it, it was something that very much related to my personal journey and, and discovering about what I needed to heal personally for, from the trauma and the mm-hmm. like. And, um, and so I ended up moving more towards mental health advocacy, but the the time I spent teaching at San Quentin was really the catalyst for me. That opened my eyes. That's amazing. Yeah. When you're doing your advocacy work, what, like, what does that look like for you? I I, I would say, well, first of all, I say it depends on the audience Mm -hmm. Um, because I speak with employees at corporations. I 
speak to trade organizations. I speak to students. So it's, it, it depends. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm very keen on lifestyle interventions as a means mm-hmm. of supporting people. And that's very specific. What a lifestyle intervention is, is something you can do relative to your lifestyle to support your mental health. And that is nutrition, fitness, so body fitness, like exercise, mindfulness, meditation, therapy, community support, breath work, and something I call self-organization, which involves kind of organizing your environment where it supports your you know, optimal mental health state. There are some others, but those are kind of core categories I discuss. And the reason why I discuss it in such a way to large audiences of people is because a lot of people don't think that that's part of their mental health mosaic. Yeah. And here's the thing is that, you know, I think often part of the pathos of many populations is, or the majority of populations is, look, you're fine until you're not, then you're either, you know, in inpatient, outpatient, and or taking pharmaceuticals to manage your well-being. I think pharmaceuticals are extremely valuable for people in context. I also think in many contexts, pharmaceuticals are wildly overprescribed. That said, what I do advocate for is understanding what you're doing in your lifestyle combined with how you're managing your biochemistry and, you know, neurological chemistry to support that balance and foundation in your life. So Uh it's not like I'm saying, hey, here's your replacement for X, Y, and Z. The more so I'm saying, if you're not taking care of your nutrition, you're eating like crap and you're not exercising, for me, gratitude practice is part of meditation is essential. You don't have core practices around that. You're not in as good a position to succeed, whether you're taking pharmaceuticals or not. And and so what I talk about very much is, hey, understand what your mental health mosaic looks like in terms of lifestyle Mm. and then go from there. It's just about understanding that as a first intervention. I I love that because, again, I think it's one of these things where, you know, when your mental health is not so well and then you have, you know, get a diagnosis of a mental illness, you know, everything focuses on, this is the way I articulate it, is sort of that symptom reduction. And and symptom reduction is only one part of it. You have a whole life that you live in context to other things. It's also related to you know, me as a person of color, like, what does that mean, you know, living in America or living in California or living on my block as a black person? It means something, you know, and, you know, things that can happen to me on a daily basis and, you know, or maybe at work or, you know, out at the grocery store, you know, those little things that sort of poke at you just by the nature of being black and walking around, that kind of pokes at your mental health. So where is my shield, my resiliency, And also um, for me, it's not just like being resilient or having a shield against those kind of daily things. It's also what more can I be doing to, you know, reduce those daily things happening either to me or other people. So, you know, when I think of this idea of a mental mosaic, I've never heard of it put that way. I really like it because it's more than just what you're going to the doctor for. It's the context, right? Context matters. I mean, something I've I've started asking people more and more is, first off, like, 
How are you? How are you doing today? That's important. Understanding how someone is. But a natural segue from that is what are you doing for yourself today? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I don't think we ask others that enough and we don't ask ourselves that enough. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, you can be of service and burn out. You can be healing from it and not take care of yourself and have a nervous breakdown. It can often go hand in hand, you know, being of service and seeking to heal and burning out. Um, exactly. And I think sometimes people forget or there's kind of, you know, a singular approach because it happens a lot of times with people who get sober, who are self-medicating and the like. They're like, I need to heal from the, you know, from my addiction and the like, and I'm going to be focused on the recovery element and all these other things fall by the wayside because in part, you know, a key singular thing in many situations is not drink or don't do drugs and the like, but, but part of that too is do these things and then find ways to layer in ways to support yourself and do things for yourself. Yeah. And I think often if we're oriented around service and, advocacy, you know, it can sometimes lead to really detrimental lifestyle impacts. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely had to learn that because, you know, I was running a nonprofit and you're a business person. So you understand when you're running an organization, sometimes it's like it can eat up your day like literally your day and night, you're trying to keep it running. And, you know, you feel like you're, you know, you're you're the captain of the ship. And if the ship goes down, you know, you go down with the ship. So you're trying to keep the ship afloat. And and I realized that, um, quite frankly, I was doing mental health advocacy and work, what felt like 24 seven. And, um, you know, I, I had to make a shift. I didn't even recognize it until somebody approached me about applying for a different job. I said, no, I don't, I don't want to move to the East Coast. I love California. Why would I want to move to the East Coast? Well, the reason I moved to the East Coast was so that I could start this new way of thinking about my life that um, wasn't consumed by every minute doing something within mental health. And I started to sort of grow like a, a whole new friend base. Like I, I never had friends before. Like, I know that sounds weird, but I really never had friends before. And suddenly I started having all of these friends and going out for like meals and going out to events and learning how to cosplay older than dirt. I think I'm the oldest cosplayer. I'm not, but <laughs> you just made my day by sharing this. I love, I, I absolutely love to hear that. Yes. I mean, it was just this whole new life I found that I was like, oh, well, who is this person? There's the work person. And then there's this, oh, that's Karis. That's like the person person. It was, it's really kind of exciting. So once I figured that out, I was like, okay, I can come back to California now. You know, it took me five years and I came back to California and, um, you know, now I know exactly how to do that. But I, I think sometimes people forget we are fully human. We're not mentally ill. I don't like the term mentally ill Mm -hmm. because it takes away that fully humanness of us that um, are all of these other things that we're contributing to society. And I do have a question about how you think the public is really understanding like mental health, mental illness, stigma, discrimination. Like, do you think the public's getting it yet? That's a, that's a really good question. And it's challenging to answer decisively. One of the primary challenges actually is in terms of how how market solutions crop up to deal with what we're calling the parallel pandemic, the mental health 
pandemic that's over the past three years has, you know, impacted one, one could make the argument, the majority of Americans, Mm -hmm. potentially majority of people abroad, but let's just focus in the case of America, because there's a very specific market solution issue. And when I say there's a market solution issue is that when there's a pandemic, you know, a crisis of pandemic proportions, what you end up having is solutions. The private sector crops up and says, okay, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to solve this by expanding distribution and accelerating the, the speed in which people will get prescriptions for pharmaceuticals. This is the solution. We will lower the bar to deliver pharmaceuticals for people and we'll give them more of what we believe the, markets, the market will provide up till market saturation. That's how we solve this issue. Now, mind you, there's a reason why that's, that market solution is the case. The challenges with that are couplefold. One is that came into being in terms of, you know, reducing the qualifying period, whether it's using the DSM model or not to provide prescriptions for people. It's because there's not enough therapists to support people, you know, populations in the way that they need to be supported. There's certainly not enough psychiatrists. There there are counties in the U.S. without a single psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Even to prescribe people medications, there are not enough qualified people given the previous framework prior to the pandemic. So what the market solution provided was, was very specific. It was, let's deputize people and enable them the opportunity to prescribe medications and the like. It's a triage solution, right? It's something that was meant to manage a very extreme situation. And so what you have now is nurse practitioners, whether they have psychiatric training or not, many being now family nurse practitioners can be met with and prescribed medication. The first stage of that is, and this ended up leading to some major issues is that controlled substances could be prescribed. Xanax, Mm. medication for ADHD, et cetera. There's been a little bit of pullback for that uh, around that. And now it's ultimately things like SSRIs, SNRIs and the like, meaning Many, many people are getting mood stabilizers and or other prescriptions to manage their mental health without integrated care models. But the main thing is, is that where we're at now in the current snapshot of mental health is we need more people with the right training and potential things like technology tools in addition to access to interventions, whether they be lifestyle or otherwise, but at an affordable equitable, parity-based level. And so more training, more affordable solutions with integrated care models where you don't have the, you know, one and done, just prescribe and walk away. Yeah. And I'm going to add on to what you're saying and also think about, um, because, you know, it's also about, you know, addressing social determinants of health, you know, where people are, if people are in a food desert and all they have is access to poor quality food or high fat food or, you know, things that are not nutritious. Why is that? You know, why can't we do better? How do we do better? So again, that's the context model. Like, you know, what is your lifestyle like? And sometimes, you know, I, 
I will say that some people might worry, oh, well, now you're blaming me. You're blaming me. <laughs> and there may be other social causes or constructs in which the right. person lives that's causing some of the lifestyle um, issues. So those need to be addressed too. And you can't medicate those away right, at the end of right. the day. Yeah. You, you can't medicate those away. And, that, and I think that's why, you know, you've heard me talk about sort of this, this uh, focus on the crisis system, especially, well, I think it was like pre and of course, during the pandemic or syndemic, whichever words we want to use. And I've said, well, you know, everybody's cropping up to come up with these very sort of packaged solutions that are not addressing some of them, like foundational underlying issues. So we have sort of this crisis industrial complex that keeps kind of making it about, well, how can we move, I want to say big organizations, I'll put it that way, uh, in a way to solve problems that are really about, um, in some ways, I would say pretty fast solutions. Oh, well, you're you're saying such an important point, because I think, and and often, you know, there can be, and I, I can often assume a very you know, a privileged mindset around this saying, oh, the solution simple, it's just nutrition, right? And then it's just mm-hmm. like, well, when a significant percentage of Americans, whether they come from, you know, low income populations or not, do not have access to the appropriate nutrition mm-hmm. and getting organic food and, you know, fresh vegetables and things like that, especially in this environment, is not necessarily an affordable mode of living one's life, right? And right. so, you know, the same applies to fitness. There are places in the US where there are no sidewalks. Yeah, exactly. To, you know, where you can't even walk from point A to point B. And I think it can be taken for granted in some circumstances saying, hey, this is a solution. Everyone should have access to it, but the model of care or the support mechanism or the education might reach someone and they're like, okay, I'm looking around what can I do to support myself? Yeah. We live in California where they happen to grow a lot of food. So why are there food deserts in a place where food is grown? (laughs) You know? So I think, you know, starting with the idea of the mosaic and then kind of layering that on top of, you know, what do people have access to in order for them to fully um, kind of actualize the most, the, the mental health mosaic that you're talking about is yeah. also one way to think about it. Well, I want to, I do want to emphasize and prioritize walkability too. Yes. The reason why I meant, uh, you know, the reason why I mentioned that is a consideration is that urban planning models do not factor that in. And, you know, there's a public transit component and the like, but there's a lot of cities that were, that grew that, that yeah. found the majority of their growth, LA included, yeah. in the past 50 to 70 years that don't give you an opportunity to walk to a place in walking distance yeah. in, a re- in a reasonable manner. Yeah, that, That's yeah. what I'm framing about the walkability consideration. Right. It's not just right. about, hey, you know, it's cars and everyone needs to be on bikes. I'm actually not referring to that. I'm mm. actually referring to the fact that even if some place is someplace you can access. And the reason why I'm saying walkability is important is because it is actually quite good for your mental health yes. and well-being. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, and more yeah. rollability. Let's be all like inclusive yeah, sure, here, right? Sure, walkability, rollability. We know what we're saying, right? Yeah, yes. yeah. walkability, yeah. rollability, you know, what have you. Um, yeah. And the challenge is to get the consensus to develop more environments that are more conducive towards optimal mental health is challenging because it involves reconfiguring 
cities. I, you know, mm. I also want to make the, the cultural argument too. I think you need, you need different cultures, people from different walks of life interacting yeah. to, to have a, a more balanced approach towards all sorts of different elements of, of well-being and mental health. But really what it boils down to is we need to identify our, what we can do for our mental health map it to a mosaic and then figure out, hey, what's immediately actionable? Where do we want to go with it? There are things like mindfulness, meditation, gratitude exercises that you can do, breath work that you you can do anywhere. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, there are limitations. And then, sure. you know, I mean, you know, it extends into the criminal justice system. There's just, there needs to be more opportunities for people to be educated around what they can do to take care of their mental health. And then, yeah. you know, of course, there's the, the integrated care models, improving access. I mean, we could go on and on and on about it. Yeah, that. yeah. I mean, you know, I think I'll just bring this into sort of the conversation too, is uh, you know, Dr. Pat Deegan has um, uh, what's called personal medicine. She, she talks about personal medicine, that thing that it's not so much what you take, meaning pill medicine is something you take, you put it in your mouth or maybe sometimes you don't put it in your mouth, maybe given to you by injection, what have you. But, but that's something that, um, you know, you put in your body and it does its thing. And what, what she says about personal medicine is the thing that you're doing, the thing that you have control over, the thing that helps you be well, like, how do you know what those things are? How do you write those things down? How do you write how they actually um, help you? And, and that kind of is a whole nother level of kind of, looking at all of those things in the mosaic. And um, there's another piece that she talks about too, which is the action steps for change. So if it's not readily there, how do you change it? And I would have never thought about, well, maybe we should be doing stuff with urban planning and urban, you know, kind of uh, departments of urban planning or things like that in, in schools. So that, you know, you're learning as, as people are learning about urban planning, they're putting in their mindset, how do I make this not just accessible or, you know, healthy, but how do I think of it from a mentally healthy standpoint too? Like, that's amazing. Like get them, get them early rather than trying to retrain a whole bunch of people. Absolutely. Yeah. The retraining elements really challenging. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and I think, you know, the thing I've learned too, and this is something that I, you know, I grew up in the Bay area. I grew up in San Francisco during a particular period where it was, there was a lot of different communities interacting with one another. It's, become a little bit more homogenous over time. But what I found is that a lot of my learnings around mental health and taking care of myself come from Eastern philosophy, mm. you know, learning about things like holistic medicine, acupuncture, even while I'm learning about Western medicine. Yeah. And, you know, having understanding of what the Ayurvedic principles are wow. and how that ultimately influences how we think about diet and the different chakras. I'm not saying, hey, I have to embrace this as my be all end all. What I'm saying is, hey, I can learn about all these different things. And if I didn't have that density of interaction, yeah, I wouldn't have, you know, the opportunity to learn all these different elements. There's a there's a benefit to things like social media and technology and the Internet and that you can learn all this through a screen, but it's no replacement for sitting down with someone from a different perspective yeah. who effectively, you know, dialogues with you, speaks with you through 
the different elements and learnings and things like that. And so, you know, my my perspective around my personal mosaic would not be nearly as developed. I'll just say it as developed if I hadn't spent time with people from completely different approaches, cultures, upbringings to help me, you know, develop a deeper understanding. And that's been really essential towards my mental health journey. Yeah, that's, that's really so rich. And that's my, my life. I'm an army brat. I was born, you know, in Germany and lived most of my life, you know, I don't want to say traipsing all over the country, but or being traipsed, my father, like, we're going here, pack up, move. <laughs> but that's kind of what it was. And, you know, he was brilliant in saying wherever we lived, he wanted us to, um, you know, live in the community. He wanted us to do the activities the other kids were doing um, from that culture. We were not hanging out with the, um, well, we, you know, we were, but I don't want to sound like we were so exclusionary, but, you know, we didn't do everything with the American um, kids on base. We did things in the community. You know, my um, violin teacher was Korean. My piano teacher was Korean. I was in the Korean Girl Scouts. Like there's this little <laughs> black girl in this outfit in the Korean Girl Scouts. And it's just like, I'm sure those girls now as women are going, you know, with their kids. Yeah, she, her, her, she was one of us. Wow. Right? <laughs> and they're all going, what is that black girl doing there? But um, it was, it's this experience that it just, um, it expands your mind. I think also part of recovery is about learning and growth, always about learning and growth. And you can get that in so many different ways, which includes getting to know people who aren't like you or who don't look like you or don't speak the same language or are not from the same country or culture or what have you. So I think all of that is um, so important, you know, as we kind of, you know, grow into who we are and then figure out, hmm, you know, what are the things that are going to help me? I learned something from that guy over there who's from Sri Lanka that I didn't even think that I knew about before. That's pretty powerful yeah. stuff. Well, you know, I, you bring up some very, very salient, good points. Um, and for me, there's there, there's blockers to that, to developing openness and learn and wanting to learn and that. And, you know, I, I'm very much had those blockers mm. and it it's resentment. Mm, right. Mm. If you're if you're resenting being in a community or where you're living and based upon all these different you know factors that you feel is impeding your growth or is preventing you from living, you know, this your dream. Right. Mm -hmm. Those blockers of resentment can prevent you from actually finding opportunities um. and and being open, you know, serendipity and you know what not only what serendipity can provide but you know ways in which you can learn from others yeah yeah and and so you know that's that's there's some first crucial steps that need to be had and i lived by resentment for so long wow. i mean it was just it was very much you know a mode of thinking you know it's like oh well i'm frustrated because i don't have everything i want at this time and you know look at this person who has whatever I think I need at the time mm -hmm. that could be an obsession. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you can, you can kind of put that aside and just be like, Hey, you can be oriented towards loving and be open when and where possible and be open to opportunities and, you know, luck will find you. That's wow. That's okay. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I just want rainbows and kind of like, you know, I'm ready for a popsicle right about now. But, but yeah, I think, um, you know, if you could stay in that mindset, it may, it may sound kind of too, 
for some people, I, I could, I could hear some people going, oh, well, that's really great. But, you know, and that's yeah. the mindset where it's like, that's why I always say yes. And yes. And I, right, I right, make it so. a discipline to say, sometimes it's like, huh. And because I really can't say yes, but I can kind of say, huh, well, let me put that in there and kind of roll it around. And right. Right. Yeah. No, you look, I mean, to, to be perfectly clear, <laughs> I mean, like I wake up, and I have resentments all the time. And yeah. the, ma- the main thing for me, the reason why I say luck will find you is because yeah. the more opportunity you present for yourself in terms of being open to learning, being open to trying new things to manage your mental health, the more you will increase the surface area of something working. Okay, that's just brilliant. So that's why you're an unapologetically black unicorn. I get it now. I, I got it before, but I definitely get it now. I, I love the way you sort of articulate different things. It's like, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. So before we wrap up, because we need to wrap up, sadly, I always ask people to do sort of one wisdom dropping. You've dropped lots of wisdom, but is there any one thing that you want our listeners to leave with that's sort of your wisdom dropping in the pod today? Yeah. Find your reason. Doesn't need to happen overnight. It can take months. It can take years. For me, it's service is my path to happiness. In my father's case, very much related to helping people laugh and helping people learn. That's what he lived by. And so, you know, I would encourage for listeners, find that reason. And things will come from it. Ideally good things. It's uh, it's awesome to be on the show. I'm honored to be a honorary uh, guest and unapologetically black unicorn <laughs> podcast. It's, it's it's just the best name for a podcast. Yeah, yeah. So you're not honorary. You're fully um, in the club. I'll show you the handshake later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining in today and for the beautiful last uh, message and wisdom. And just a reminder for the listeners that we will be back same channel same everything um for unapologetically black unicorns next week thank you zach thanks karis